0: Hello and welcome to Holy C of the podcast where we discuss what it means to be a Catholic Christian in the Church of England. My name's Callum Mullard, and I'm joined by Clinton Collister, um, who's kindly asked me to come back and, and speak again um, on Holy C of So thanks for asking me again, Clinton. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Callum. You're, you're a regular now, so, so uh, <laughs> I don't know if, it, if it's an invitation so much as an ex- expectation. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, how how's your your week been? I enjoyed that uh, reading group that you led last night. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. What, what what do you make of Borsma's Eucharistic participation, and and how's it, how's it going over at at Pusey House? How are the students liking it? It's been
0: very exciting. Yes. So we've been reading a book called Eucharistic Participation by Hans Borsma, as you said, um, which is. A book kind of looking at how the church historically, especially in the patristic consensus, but across the whole church, has seen the Eucharist as being a sacrifice and having sacrificial elements. Um, and also the sense of, uh, the understanding of it as a as real presence of Christ. But trying to do that in a way that is responding to some of the reformed critiques which arose uh, during the 16th century. And, and taking seriously those critiques and saying that there's something to those critiques, that it's not just... Um, entirely wrong but actually that there is a good um, answer to those questions which affirms that uh, ecumenical consensus um, of the sacrificial and son of the Eucharist. So we've been having this reading group and yeah it was going very well, we um, had some very interesting discussions about what does it really mean to say the Eucharist is a sacrifice, how do we offer up our lives to Christ in the the whole church being taken up into this um, sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and very interesting discussions. I think hopefully it will be helpful for people, especially people more new to the Catholic tradition, to think through these um, these big questions.
1: Right. Yeah. It, it seemed like there were some people there who just love going to Holy Communion and, and love being in the presence of Jesus. Uh, you know, when when the Eucharist is being celebrated, and they're just kind of eager to go there and learn. And and it seemed like there were also some people who were more skeptical. I don't know from a Calvinist point of view, or other people who are just skeptical of kind of the language of participation and how it's become popular now with Borisman's Heavenly Participation, Andrew Davison's book on participation, sort of radical orthodoxy and, and Nouvelle theology and that sort of thing. And so it seemed like a, a good discussion, uh, and people coming from different angles. But but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed my my uh, the one time I've been. But. Yeah, and, and and I mean you're you're really uh, hustling this, this term now that you finished <laughs> your degree. You, you also you're helping helping David Sten out with uh, the, the Friday group. What, what what are you guys what are you guys talking about?
0: So we've been talking about a book called A Faith of Our Own by Austin Farah. It's a mm. kind of a book of vignettes, really. Um, so for those who don't know, Austin Farah was uh, the warden of Keeble College in Oxford. Um, so a significant Uh, theologian of the 20th century of the anglo-catholic tradition and yeah this book is full of his kind of um, very earthy wisdom um, and reflections a lot of them feel and read a lot like sermons really i think Um, but it's yeah it's a kind of basic exposition through these um, vignettes of the catholic faith as understood in in the anglican church and again it's been really interesting to um, encourage people in that and kind of welcome in lots of people from different angles, lots of them, uh, people from more evangelical background, and kind of think about uh, what it means to be a Christian, what is the church, uh, what are the sacraments, and uh, yeah, kind of doing the bread and butter stuff at Pusey House of yeah, standing well, and, and, in that gap.
1: And, and he's kind of a, a legend as a, I don't know, as a scholar, as a. Priest as a theologian because he he has all these different ways he can speak. Well, I guess mm. maybe he's like and and right, uh, he or somebody that who who has these different registers he can speak yes. in. Because I remember my friend Ewan Grant who came on for an episode. You, you know he he uh, is deep deep in the Thomistic conversation and and talks high metaphysics. You know and uh, and he was he was going to give a sermon. Up at All Saints and Saint Andrews, and I think he said in order to prep for it and to kind of make sure he was writing in a way that was going to to speak to the people, he was he was reading uh, Austin Farrer on the train ride uh, from from Oxford up yeah. there, and yeah, I, I haven't I, yeah I, I haven't read as many books of his as I would like to, but I what I have read has been helpful and, and he actually comes from the same sort of scene as the theologian we're talking about today mm. I think they were both in Oxford at the same time mm. E.L. Maskell and Austin Farr and um, Michael Ramsey was sort of part of that world as well and and um, yeah so so th- that sounds like good stuff uh, it's amazing that I managed to talk you into to reading another book for this uh, episode <laughs> well, all the Anglo-Catholic <laughs> theologians uh, for this time yeah
0: so how have you been finding being a worklift, Glenton Clinton? It's uh, great to have you as an ordinary trainer training with me. How have you found it so far?
1: Well, today I, I had to get good at the commute. I, I don't know why. So Sarah is on half term. And so I was going to try to work from home a bit after fellowship group. And so I had, had forgotten that I had some commitments. And so there was a lot of walking and bussing back oh, and man. forth uh, to, to go get this mic for the episode oh, and, and also because I, I had a, a fun meeting talking to people about theology and the arts I like that that Wycliffe has this renaissance project and theology and the arts initiative so mm. it'll, it'll be cool to see what comes of that mm. I met I met with uh, Jonathan today and that was good uh, yeah I mean Wycliffe just seems like a warm and, and uh, friendly sort of place and mm. I, I, I'm meeting a lot of interesting people I, I was talking to this guy today who's an ordinand who studied philosophy and ran a, f- a film and, and theology group at his mm. last university and I don't know I'm meeting all kinds of interesting people I'm still getting to know the lay of the land mm. how, how are you finding it now that you're a married man is it a very different experience it is a bit different actually
0: yeah I mean I think the fact that um, I'm not living on site, although I'm actually living right next door in married accommodation. But there is a significant difference, I think, between that kind of, I guess, in some ways, much more intentional community when you're on site with lots of other single ordinands to suddenly moving one building off. But you know, in your own um, flat, um, Grace and I, yeah, it's, it's it is slightly different life. Yeah, I think Wycliffe is a it's a interesting and exciting place. I think it is somewhere where it is a little strange in some ways to be more Anglo-Catholic because it's quite a small group isn't it and 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 Wycliffe is generally more low and evangelical Um, but it's Mm -hmm. a very there's lots of very very sincere Christians and it's a very sincere and warm Christian environment and and generally united by having more I guess traditional conservative convictions um, with regards to the church isn't it and so that there's certainly a um, there is a binding agent there I think in that way isn't there
1: it does seem seem like there's a lot of common ground for Orthodox Christians right now and and that includes in the Church of England. I mean actually that touches on a sort of theme of today's episode. So uh, Maskell has written many, many books, uh, but but uh, I thought it would be good to hone in on his book, The Importance of Being Human, A because Christians are thinking through what it means to be, Human, man, woman, made in the image of God—all these things right now—and and these are things that are being discussed in the in the church and debated in the church. Uh, also, though, because uh, I've been I've been uh, talking to my friend Father Ben Jeffries, who's been on, on on the podcast before, about putting this book back into print for a while. And this this gave me a reason to spend more time with it. Hmm. But but um, yeah. To, to your point, I, I think evangelical Anglicans and Catholic Anglicans. Share a conviction that Scripture, as understood in in the tradition, gives us truths about what it means to be human and what the nature of man and woman and husband and wife, marriage, family, all these things are, in a way that if you're of a more, I, I guess you'd say, hmm, a, a, a more contextual or or, or um. A, a sort of philosophy in which you think that revelation develops in ways that can depart from or contradict or just rhyme with the, the past, rather than Progressive, actually. maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe pre- progressive. self identified I mean. Yeah, maybe that would be a more positive way to, to frame it. Uh, and, 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 and so... And it would be interesting someday to go into these questions of doctrinal development because obviously there are ways in which over time Christians reflect on things and come to understand some of them mm-hmm. w- with new language that um, responds to new questions or contexts or technological developments I and mean, we're talking about uh, what it means to be human in, in the face of you know, transhumanism and AI and all these sort of things uh, but but all that to say, I agree with you. There's still a lot of camaraderie to mm. be had at, at, at Wycliffe Hall and between <laughs> e- evangelical and Catholic Christians mm. right mm. now. Uh, so, so shall we say a little bit about um, Maskell and the importance of being humans? I, I guess w- what are some things that uh, jump out at you in terms of your kind of in- introduction to his work? Have you read any of his other books before this?
0: Um, I haven't really, um, and so this is it's great pleasure to be able to talk and think about this with you clinton but it is it's quite new to me in some ways really um you've been telling me for probably as long as i've known you that i really should read some Maskell. um Mm. and i've neglected to do that until (laughs) reading for this really i mean i've obviously read a bit of his and different bits where um for basically for essays and different points where he's come up but i've never read a uh, book of his before cover to cover really okay Um, okay partly just the complexities of trying to study theology or reading so much as it is I think the idea of then diving into non-prescribed um, texts is uh,
1: yeah when you're doing the BA at Oxford it seems like it's sort of a sprint mentality bit, yeah. they, they assign a great many books uh, yeah
0: but that's the, the pleasure this year of having more time to really engage um, more with especially books from the Anglo-Catholic tradition um, no I thought it was an excellent book um, and I thought one that was very timely and I uh, I know the bit that we're kind of intending to talk about today is the first half of it, where he talks a lot more about um, the u- uniqueness of, of humans and um, the context of humanity in the context of evolution and of technological advancements. And it did strike me, I mean, just how, in some ways, how forward-thinking he is for someone writing 1958. He is talking directly and, and tackling some of the issues of transhumanism um, which really are only coming to the floor properly now, right? Because we've actually, you know, it'd be another fifty years after he's written this that the technology which would really de- begin to develop around, especially AI and things like you say, has actually makes any sense, right? But he he clearly in the in the late nineteen fifties is is seeing uh, maybe prophetically this kind of move um, of what it means to be a human and the role of technology in that. Um, so, yeah.
1: I, that's true. I, I like that he's engaging with science fiction yep. uh, in it, and, and he's trying to say, like, actually, you know, C.S. Lewis has a more plausible understanding yes. of what <laughs> aliens would be like in terms of the shapes of their skulls, because the nature of evolution yeah. is such that you need a certain kind of uh, skull and brain in order to have these sort of reasoning faculties. Yes, that's great. Stuff. He's citing the, the evolutionary science from the time and like, than talking about these other science fiction writers who have totally implausible uh, intellectual creatures, you know. I, I don't know. So that that was funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so speaking of the uniqueness of man, it, it, it seems like M- Maskell believes that Darwin's theories and the contemporary evolutionary theory of his day has made it so many people are starting to question whether. Humans are all that different from animals, or whether they would be distinct from aliens, say, were they were to be uh, discovered, uh, and uh, and so he he wants to look at this head on, and this is part of, part of what I like about his work. He has a I don't know passion and joy for for um, reading widely. Widely, he's not he's not a sort of um, specialist who so uh, Narrowly focused, that he's not actually going to converse with people outside of his discipline, mm. and and uh, so, so it makes it so he's willing to grapple grapple with some of these questions. So when it comes to um, evolution, it, it, it seems like he wants to underscore that that to be made a little lower than the angels, or or um, also to be made in the way that the Genesis account describes, does not simply mean that Christianity is, is um, t- totally mm. fictive or unbelievable or, mm. or like a fairy tale in a sort of way that could easily be dismissed, mm. but that there are some deep truths at play uh, in in these scriptural ways of talking about what it means mm. to be man. So can you... Share a bit about what yeah. he has to say Shall in that I? regard.
0: I'll read, i just quote. Um, this is a, a quote from the first chapter of the book, uh, Uniqueness of Man. So it says, We must remember that according to traditional Christian belief, a man is not just a highly developed biological organism, but a highly developed biological organism which has been subsumed into a mysterious and complicated union with a spiritual and immortal soul. And this is as true as our primeval ancestors, as of ourselves. Even if we hold that the production of man's body is a matter of pure chance, and I shall take up on that point farther on, the production of man is not a matter of chance, if it involves the direct and deliberate action of God. In the language of Genesis, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and however the original writer understood his assertion, there is nothing to prevent us from taking the dust from the ground as denoting one of the higher anthropoids. The production of this anthropoid may indeed be a matter of chance, like so much in the evolutionary process, but need that worry us? Suppose that God uses just this method of chance to produce here and there the occasional physical organism which, by its organic adaptability, and its cerebral complexity is an adequate counterpart for a rational and spiritual soul.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so I like that he he's pointing out e- even if we go along with what was the contemporary evolutionary theory of his day, and and there's a lot of truth to be found in here, and a lot of explanatory power. Some people would would then assume, oh, well, that means that humans can be reduced to simply. They're highly developed biological systems, and, mm. and that, that we can explain them on a naturalistic level or a naturalistic plane. And he, he gives a lot of good reasons why that's not adequate mm. as, as this all develops. But even early on, just from the Christian point of view, saying, well, we're also spirit and soul, and from the account that we find in Genesis... Even if there was something physical that was simply taken up by God and formed, it was breathed into and given given this life, and the, so so there's the, this holistic vision of the person, and, and a, a lack of fear of contemporary science. He doesn't mm. he doesn't think that it's going to be able to disprove uh, the, the truths revealed in scripture. Uh, what, what do you make of that?
0: I mean, it's very interesting to me because um, I didn't grow up at all as a Christian and I grew up in a very much a kind of more secular environment and for me, when I was in my teenage years and considering um, the purpose of life and why I was here and, and did it really make sense that um, I was here on this random planet by a long process of blind chance, uh, effectively working behind the workings of the universe to, and then um, evolution of uh, biological organisms to where we are now to think about this, I... Had this instinctive feeling as a fourteen-year-old that this this didn't seem very likely to me that this had all happened kind of by blind chance and blind chance and blind chance and accident Mm. of a chain of kind of infinite um, progress and so it is very interesting because I guess that's exactly the logic that he's kind of probing in some ways was in a much more (laughs) less developed (laughs) theological way it was those kind of instincts I think that really led me to consider well maybe there is a god you know maybe we're here for a purpose so um, I think this is something that a lot of people really if if they really dig down, it is a question there, and, and for people especially who don't have any religious system to um, place their understanding of it here, are we really here by a great team of accidents? Um, and I think Maskell does do a very good job of kind of um, trying to flesh out why it, it might be unlikely that that life would have formed in the way that it has, unless some, unless God desired it to take that course in some ways, but also um, that. There is the, the 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 biblical account that the account that we as Christians believe about human beings as being these strange things which are um, somehow reach up spiritually are spiritual beings and yet are also animals in some sense. That that is not one that is um, need be at all contradictory to significant aspects of modern science, even if it might begin obviously at quite different presuppositions about um, well obvious presuppositions of. of whether there's actually a purpose behind uh, human beings and, and biological life.
1: I, I appreciate the way that he puts these these theories of evolution in the context of Christian doctrine of creation and, and in particular how he talks about God is the creator and the sustainer and is providential and yet God created us out of his own freedom of choice and it's not as if um, we're Platonists who believe we simply emanated as parts of the creation mm. from from um, the one and, and it was a sort of deterministic aspect of God's nature that there would be creation but instead he's saying God has this freedom of choice and that as persons, you know, get given um, spirits and souls and uh, reason, we also have Sort of freedom of choice as made in his image, and this allows for this relationship between God and man, and I I think that's um, yeah pr- profound how how he um, makes that makes that clear how how um, the the interplay of evolutionary theory and the doctrine of man. Mm. Um, it, it's something I I I don't think he
0: made the point, but it's something that you talk about, Bishop. Tom Wright, who we're very um, thankful to have residing in Wycliffe as the kind of um, in-house um, senior theologian, so to speak. But he makes, I think, a very interesting point that the god of the parable of the sower in some ways doesn't look like a god entirely contradictory to um, how we might see some aspects of evolution play out, that there's, there, there are um, aspects of evolution which might seem to go down s- several avenues which don't seem to come to final fruit in some sense. But yet yeah, there's a pattern there in the Parallel of the Sower that maybe looks like it kind of maybe mirrors a little bit aspects of how the created world works. And that need not be a bad or wicked thing, but that, that in many ways gives God glory, that you know God is a creative God who has made um, things through. Um, and this is this is a point that he pulls out, right, that Mask pulls mm-hmm. out of um, God may have created lots of different organisms and animals just for... The joy of creating him, in some sense, that that is a good and um, a glorious thing, in some ways, and need not worry Christians uh, at all.
1: And and in responding to Huxley and other um, evolutionary theorists and critics of the the doctrine of creation uh, almost anticipates, you know, what, what was in vogue when I was an undergraduate, the, the, the sort of new atheist Richard Dawkins naturalism, in in which um, evolutionary theory is thought to explain everything you know metaphysics mm-hmm. and the cosmos and and physics and you know it, it's the sort of um, over ambition of, of the theory and the sort of land grab that t- 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 took place i think during his day but then also uh, you, you know in in the 2000s that was a common way to to mm-hmm. view things and you know i knew people growing up a christian who walked away because they discovered their Dawkins and Hitchens and, and that kind of thing. And so it makes sense to me that as he's introducing the doctrine of man and the importance of being human, the uniqueness of being human, he he would want to respond to these kind of questions and and potential potential problems. But I, I like that he also situates it in in a sort of time and place and mm-hmm. and recognizes that there are different uh, problems that the church deals with in different ages. So he he's he's talking about how in the in the early church, for instance, they're surrounded by all of these pagan religions and pagan cults in which there's this readiness to worship everything. Uh, what is it that he has to say about that? Yeah,
0: let me read another quote. In the modern Anglo-Saxon world, or at any rate in my own country, we are, it seems to me, in the almost diametrically opposite position to that of the church in the ancient world. It was the perennial failing of ancient religion that it tended to see the personal everywhere, to identify everything with the divine, to worship everything within sight, stones and cats and crocodiles. It is the radical defect of western 20th century civilization, on the other hand, that it tends to depersonalize everything, even the ultimate ground of existence, the great first cause of which St Thomas could still say in his day that all men understood it to be God. In the ancient world, the Church had to devote a large amount of its effort to stopping people from worshipping, for polytheism was for them almost second nature. In our time, the Church finds it difficult to get people to understand the very notion of worship, and the civilised European, I must leave you to decide whether this is true of the civilised American as well, is as little likely to become a polytheist as to become a Polynesian. And maybe this is interesting, maybe because I think, obviously, this is still very much true. Um, but it is interesting, and maybe this is the <laughs> the little bit of age that you know, is between us, which is not really? much, really, but that actually that wave of new atheism maybe has has come back a little bit, I think, hasn't it? That it, it seems to be going out a little bit um, more than maybe it was. seemed to be pushing further in. Maybe the tide is receding a little bit. I, I'm sure, you know, still we are still in age... Where we tend to depersonalize much more than we tend to personalize like they did in the ancient world, but I wonder as as more positivistic logical positivist ideas more common in kind of a more modernist mindset recede a little bit to more postmodern ideas um, whether these ideas are a little going out of fashion I think you can see that can't you in the decline of the fashion of people like the new atheists and many people who may have listened to the new atheists 10 years ago now um, listening to people like Jordan Peterson and and, you know Jonathan Pajou have you know much more interested in um, at least a psychological understanding of of religion um, if not in Peterson's case of a kind of maybe more metaphysical uh, context of it.
1: Right I think that what he's describing is no longer the Case for a lot of people. I mean, I'm sure there's a sort of residual um, D- Darwinian uh, ex- uh, D- Darwinian faith that evolution can explain all, all the great questions about what it means to be human. Mm. Um, but but I don't think that's the up and coming perspective. And I don't think that what he's saying about. Uh, how how modern people can no longer worship at all uh, applies in our contemporary context. I, I mean, I, so I think about during his day. The the most common critiques of Christianity focused on the supernatural claims: Jesus born of a virgin, fully God and fully man; that, that he rose from the dead; the, the idea that God is not simply uh, a, a sort of concept um, or, or uh, I, explanation for our, our highest ideals or our aspirations for the good but instead that god is a, is a person you, you know if if you have you know you're a marxist or a Dar- darwinian in a naturalistic sense or or um, a logical positivist like you were saying then all of these things are going to seem implausible and so you find some people in the church Accommodating the culture by trying to to water down the faith and and to say, oh yeah, you can still be a Christian and and uh, you can um, cross your fingers during the creed, you know, when it comes to the virgin birth or the resurrection or, or these various things, and, and I think Maskell, he's writing during this this sort of disenchanting period, and and uh, and, and so he he's talking about depersonalization. Well, well, I mean, that has to do with this lack of belief in the the supernatural, right? In in the spirit and the soul that that he was describing. Right now, I think people, from from everything I'm reading and seeing, it seems like you know, belief in astrology is up. Yes. Uh, belief in. D- you know, different Eastern religions is up, New age is thriving, and paganism ne- right. neo-paganism is big. you know the, the people people are opening up to these things, and even their commitments to uh, ideologies right now seem to be taking on the sort of fervor of faith and and uh, they're willing to believe in high ideals, not just utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And, and And I think more than anything, Right now, there is a tendency to worship persons, mm. and uh, ex- in particular, the self. Mm. And and so, any claim that we all are, are part of um, a natural creation, and we need to live in harmony with the creation or um, obey the creator, is seen as to an affront of of the sort of s- self who should be able to to do whatever they desire and to become whatever they will. And and uh, the, the interior life of the self is seen as, as sacred. Mm. And to, to speak against those desires or wills or self-identity is um, seen as sacrilegious. And you mm. might even find uh, the law coming after you for that. And, and, and so I do think the context has changed. And, mm. and, and I appreciate his ability to see you need to speak to, to the difference issues of the day and cultural context uh, when you're talking about what it means to be human and it's
0: very interesting because uh, the the point about what will follow in some sense the kind of depersonalizing um i forget where it is which is frustrating me but c.s lewis talks about this that he does think that what he sees in his day which i guess is very much the tide coming up the beach right and maybe now we're seeing it recede a bit he thought that it would recede and that actually would be replaced by some form of uh, paganism in some sense which i think is how he describes it i must look where that is but i mean it's interesting that you know these um these mid-20th century theologians anglican theologians did have maybe some sight where this is going but to, to your point about um the kind of uh yeah postmodern milieu that the church finds itself in and, and responding to it reminds me of a story that a friend told me um so he he's involved in kind of Christian uh, evangelism and, and especially in kind of student context and he told me a story about how they had this talk it was at some kind of events week um, on the resurrection and um, the speaker gave a very compelling case as to why the, the biblical accounts and what happens in it um, point to the resurrection being true and he talked to this person um, on this table and the person said to him oh well yeah seems like it could be true but you know it's not really not really my thing and my friend responded to him saying what do you mean you know you, you you kind of believe that a man came back from the dead but it's just not your thing like how does that work and I, I think that is you know in some ways that's a kind of bizarre conversation right but I think it maybe is one that people like Maskell would have found unbelievably bizarre um that the truth has become so subjective that well maybe a man did rise from the grave but you know it's not really my thing. I, it's, yeah, it's just <laughs> you strange. do you. you know, yeah, I-
1: individual autonomy trumps truth claims. Or, yeah. Uh, yes, and and um, I guess that, that goes back to my point about there seems to be self-worship, and we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves. So there is a right way to love yourself, um, but but uh, this seems to go way beyond that. And I suppose it's it's because if you don't believe in God. Proper, then, mm. then you start worshiping uh, gods, you know, mm. as in idols, um, which which uh, the self definitely can become that. Mm. Uh, and it seems like Maskell focuses on the same point that you're making about human nature that because there is a creator and a creation, and the creation is good, that there's a, a givenness to nature and things are made with, with a particular end, and, and they're made to live in harmony with, with God's order of love. I mean, he doesn't use those exact words, but he, he definitely also picks up on those themes, and it seems like it anticipates w- what we were talking about in terms of contemporary discussions about transhumanism and AI and, and what it means to be a person. So yeah, w- what does he have to say about that?
0: Yeah, so let me read a quote. As long as man's development was conceived as the effect of purely external influences over which he himself had little or no control, it might be interesting to speculate whether the human race would be changed into something vastly different. But there seemed to be nothing very much that man could do about it one way or the other. If, however, it is, or very will soon be, in man's own power to modify drastically his own genetic material, the question whether man is to remain man, was to be changed into something else, becomes of immediate practical moment. If the Christian religion is true, we have quite solid reasons for holding that, whatever developments man is meant to go undergo, and these may indeed be far-reaching, man is meant to remain man. For if God has himself become man in the incarnation, he has sealed human nature with a certificate of value whose validity cannot be disputed.
1: I, I like that point about the Incarnation, and I hadn't mentioned that in terms of emphasizing the goodness of creation and the way in which manhood in particular is, is supposed to remain what it is. You know, mm. th- that that gives us this participation in God through Christ. Mm. And, uh, but But it is fascinating how he could see all of this coming because I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was a part of a study for it was probably 5 years in which they were working on a gene therapy treatment for my condition that made me lose my sight mm. leber's hereditary optic neuropathy mm. so my mom she is uh, a very energetic and faithful and bold woman so she found what was the most advanced study for my condition mm. and she signed us up to be a part of the research uh, with with the hope that you know if it worked I might be able to be part of the the treatment eventually mm. but what they were working on is using a viral vector, vector agent to actually alter your genetic code so that your optic nerve would start working again. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been interesting. Sometimes when you talk to different people, and, and I mentioned I was part of this study, some Christians will say, like, well, how do you feel about that? Do you think it's actually moral to alter your genetic code? Or, or um, do you think that's playing God or, or, or something of the sort? And, and uh, so, so he seemed to an- anticipate these debates. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't actually think there is a problem because you're not trying to have superhuman eyesight. You're simply trying to restore normal eyesight or eyesight as it exists in the goodness of creation. Mm. But some people disagree or, or are skeptical. Well, I don't, what are your initial thoughts on that? Well, I mean,
0: I think it's obviously very interesting that in some ways he draws very much on... Um, you know the fact that Christianity as it's developed has been very much indebted to Hellenistic ideas of um, what it means to be a human but actually yet Christianity goes so much further beyond that because of, like you say, because of the incarnation um, and I guess in Christ's earthly life of course he did heal the blind, right? And so you know there's if that's not Christ giving to the blind like you say, some new gift or something which would and obviously that is different because if God gave that, then that's God's gift. But yeah, like you say, it's not a transhumanism, is it? It's as long as it's not damaging to other people or it's not, you know, um, yeah, used from, um, fetuses or, or something, you know, something which is morally hazardous in other ways. Right. I don't see any reason why it should be problematic because it's, it like you said, it's trying to restore, um, health, which, seems to me something that God has given us brains and uh, bodies to think about, right? To be healers, to um, investigate these medical questions, while also remaining um, concerned that what we're doing is making us more fully alive, as we see patterned in Christ's life, right? That, that God has become a man, and therefore um, this sets a pattern for what human life should look like. Um,
1: that seems like a crucial distinction in Maskell's approach to the doctrine of man. Whether scientific developments and um, medical interventions contribute to a culture of life mm-hmm. or whether they actually promote a, a culture of death and th- that definitely seems to be something that is lost in, in much of the post-Christian West y- you know actually death is seen as liberation and mm-hmm. freedom and compassion for a lot of people after they've given up on the idea that God has made us and we are made in the image of God and life is sacred. Mm. Mm.
0: And it, it's interesting as well that um, he does draw this distinction between, and, and maybe this will go into the next quote that we're looking at, but just um, that as we we're talking about, you know, there is this kind of somewhat fixed nature seen in much Hellenistic thought, right? And that um, in the kind of, I guess, as Christianity is slightly receding, as you see. Um, Christian deists arguing like you know Rousseau for example um, that still that there is some fixed nature but kind of taking it away from a certain createdness um, that actually it becomes hard to see how that is really in some ways sustainable because if we're not creatures we're not given some nature by God or we're not uh, our nature isn't validated and shown what it should be in the incarnation then why is it that we can't make our lives longer or make our you know give us extra funds, or you know make our brains higher functioning what is it to stop us doing those things um and I, i do wonder if that's where some of these discussions are going right the decline of a christian understanding of human nature um it's hard to ground that properly um it's hard to have a kind of shared sense of human nature between um Christians and maybe people who have no under, no sense that they're, humans are creatures with any fixed nature. Shall I read the well, the quote? I mean, that so well
1: One thing before that, when we had Nina Power on and mm. she shared her testimony, she seemed to be saying that part of coming to believe in God and, and reading in philosophical theology and Christian ethics came from this sense that there was a givenness to manhood and womanhood mm. and simply... C- collapsing the distinction or making it malleable or saying that we can transform ourselves to match our interior identity or our, our uh, interior desires seemed to her immoral or wrong or, or um, dystopian mm. and, and she, she wanted to find a reason why this was the case and, and find an explanation for why this seemed like such a, a violation of what is right and good mm. and and it seemed like, from what she was saying, that you need um, to believe in the givenness of things and, and um, believe in a, a creator who who, who gives these, these good things to us if you want to maintain the, uh, the, the the conviction that we should respect the limits of nature. But Maskell picks up on... something similar during the in the philosophy of his own day Mm. even if they wanted to run in another direction with it so Mm. you were going to say Hmm.
0: so Maskell says this um, if one were to compare the fourth of Sartre and St. Thomas and reduce both to syllogistic form one would realize that both start with the same major premise namely from this principle things have an essential nature only in so far as they are fashioned by thought then, Thart continues, because there exists no creative intelligence which could have designed man and all natural things, therefore there is no nature in things that are not manufactured and artificial. Here are his actual words There is no such thing as na- human nature, because there exists no God to think it creatively. St. Thomas, on the contrary, declares, Because and in so far as God has creatively thought, th- things has creatively thought things just so and to that extent have they a nature what is common to sartre and saint thomas it is now evident is the assumption that we can speak of the nature of things only when they're expressed expressly considered as creatura
1: right so so maskell seems to be agreeing with with nina power's conviction there and and sartre seems to be uh a- agreeing with, with the point that if you have a creator and the creation is good, then you can have nature and, and the, the sort of imperative to live according to nature. But, but Sartre actually thinks it it's liberating that humans are the highest mm-hmm. of creation. And so we can be our own gods in, in in a sense. We can, we are free to choose what becomes of human persons, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, the interesting and complicated thing, isn't it? I mean, it slightly um, strikes in my mind. I've just reread um, Tom Holland's Dominion. Have you ever read that book? It's a, it's a fascinating book. I, I've um, flipped
1: around a little bit, but I, I can't say I, I've, I've uh, absorbed it. I mean, I guess,
0: in some sense,
1: I think he, he, when it
0: comes to the modern world, he wants to draw this kind of slightly strange distinction that there is... Um, we still work by so many Christian premises when it comes to all our moral um, intuitions, all our senses of what is good and right and true. Um, Ones which are very alien to the ancient world and one which are in some ways alien to still much of the world today, although he would also argue that because of the process of globalisation in the last few hundred years, so much of Christian thought has kind of spread all over the world. Um, But yet there's this kind of... um, difficulty in justifying why exactly it is that we still have these kind of moral principles i think sartre is kind of pulling that that complicated distinction right there that there is um why is it that we still have any sense that there's human nature if if we don't believe um that they're creatures i mean i guess the thing that would be even more complicated is Sartre still, in some ways, had quite left-wing political principles, though, right? He, he, you know, ones which arguably might be quite drawn from. And, and Maskell goes on to talk about this later. Um, essentially, Christian ideas of compassion for the weakest and the poor. Um, whereas, in some ways, you you slightly feel like someone like Nietzsche might have a um, a slightly more coherent total rejection of Christian ideas, right? If 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 there's no sense in which humans are creatures. Um, then maybe we have to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Um, whereas there's a slightly more complicated thing going on here where part is being kept, um, but but part is being rejected because we can't ground it in anything having created and, and then also incarnated into us to perfect our nature in some sense.
1: And I suppose that's more consistent with what's going on in contemporary society than the all-out Nietzsche approach. Mm. Although there are probably some subcultural circles where the Nietzsche thing is also in fashion Mm. Uh, and and, uh, I guess the debate then would be is the sort of Sartre's position that we are the highest um, uh, of uh, (laughs) we don't want to say creatures do we the the highest uh, sentient beings and therefore we can sort of make ourselves or remake ourselves or progress upon what we currently are. Mm. Some people would say there's there's a liberation there that's exhilarating or exciting or more true to reality and will lead to more happiness. Mm. Whereas I, I can imagine there are people who would say Thomas Aquinas and Maskell's position that we should live in accordance with nature and that that will lead to the greatest human flourishing, that actually that's a sort of repression that will lead to um, depression or worse suicide and, and, and so I think his final passage that we wanted to look at from this mm. section puts forward uh, he, he definitely doesn't accept that premise uh, yes. th- that that, um, that living in accordance with nature leads to misery
0: yes and and ultimately that it is to some extent that he goes on later to talk about angelic fall right it is the rejection of the angels to be who they are in some sense and likewise then men to do so afterwards that is the core of what causes the fall right to rebel against god is to reject how and what god has made us to be in some sense Let, let me read the passage a very large amount of human suffering and frustration is caused by the fact that many men and women are not content to be the sort of beings that god has made them but try to persuade themselves that they are really beings of some different kind. They may act upon the assumption that they are simply a superior grade of mammal, and that their spiritual powers and aspirations are a mere epiphenomenon of an organism essentially desirable in terms of biology and nothing more. They may, on the other hand, act upon the assumption that they are pure spirits, temporarily equipped with a physical organism which may be viewed as either a nuisance or a tool or a plaything, but is in any case something that the human being has, not part of what he is. Whichever of these hypotheses they adopt is a false hypothesis, and so is almost inevitably bound to issue in disaster. I think this is a really interesting passage, and this is something which I thought was very helpful, actually, that Maskell said, um, that we the the distinction, I guess, between um, people who would reject any sense of... um, human persons as uh, having a spiritual nature Mm -hmm. and those who would reject the notion that we have any kind of embodied form um, that's worthy, you know, so this is, you know, clearly between a kind of, you know, a very materialistic context of what a human is, right, which rejects any spiritual context, but uh, as opposed to, uh, say, a Manichian understanding of this human body that matter is somehow wicked and something to be thrown off. Maskell, um... I think very rightly, and something that I found very interesting, says that both actually can lead to, you know, basically a terrible degradation of the body because they do justify um, not living in the body in a way that honours the spiritual and likewise. And and kind of made me reflect on um, St. Augustine in his Confessions, you know, speaks of how when he was a manichaean the um, the elect, the people in the in the Manichian sect who had um, authority and who themselves were supposed to be living lives where they really rejected the flesh in some sense, actually kind of almost winked or or weren't that concerned by Augustine's own um, lust and his kind of um, sins of the flesh, which yeah is very interesting that you know both both a too lower view of the body and a too high a view of the body. Both are out of balance and ultimately will lead to what Christians would understand as a sinful misuse of the body's uh, purposes, I guess.
1: Right. If we don't believe that we are body and soul and God has made our body and and, and soul good and, and instead we, we um, fall off the saddle on either side of the horse, mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> things go terribly awry. Uh, on one hand, he... he um, quotes Jacques Maritain and criticizes uh, Descartes for a sort of angelism, where instead of man being a little lower than the angels and having this sort of mediating role between the, the, the physical creation and the spiritual realm, uh, instead instead of that, he, he, he seems to think that we are truly and really our spiritual selves and, and that our, our bodies are, are not um, central to our identity and, and personhood. And, and then on the other hand, uh, he, he um, has an interesting reading of Aldous Huxley and, and uh, the sort of anthropology of, of Brave New World and his foray into drugs and Eastern religion. And and he seems to think that there's a different kind of denigration of the body uh going on there what, what, yeah, what, what did you make of that these different instances that he finds in history of people going going um, wrong on the question of body and soul in one direction or the other
0: well I, as a, I mean I think he's, he's very accurate I think as a Christian as you say we have to we have to believe that we are bodies that we are you know in a sense animals and yet we have been by the grace of God um, made into um, called into immature that we have this spiritual reality to us we have a soul and and that therefore these things have to be balanced that you know we we can't um and and that the temptation i guess i think you know, from the devil is to fall in on either fall off on either side of the horse like you say right to mm-hmm. um to and and both ultimately lead to what scripture clearly says is not what the body is meant for because um, it is a justification for the lust and for the flesh too um, yeah to use the body in a way that's dishonoring either because well in both cases because it doesn't matter really I guess yeah. because flesh is of little importance or no importance when actually the very fact that Christ has become man that he has taken flesh shows that actually it is of ultimate importance and actually that um, you know to quote Job um, in my flesh will I see God that actually are are bodies are not going to be left behind, but our flesh will be taken up into
1: the divine life um, following Christ. And, and, and he makes this point when it comes to death too. So among Christians you'll see it debated, you know, what what happens when we die. And right, right now it's popular to criticize the picture that we en- enter the presence of God or are separated from God, that we go to heaven or go to hell when we die. And uh, you were talking about N.T. right earlier, but he's emphasized the, the importance of remembering the resurrection of the body and, and criticized people who, who focus on the ways in which we live on in this intermediate state. And, um, but, but, but Maskell wants to say, well, the soul does live on, uh, and, and it's not um, a complete uh, picture of God's purpose or, or uh, for manhood or for human persons. But there will be the resurrection of the body, and and we'll have this glorified body like, like Christ does. And so he, even in death, holds these two things together in the way that Scripture and, mm. and traditional Christian theology do as well. Mm. So shifting from soul and body and human persons understood in that sense, he, he, he goes on to look at individuals and society and, and how the human person should relate to society. Um, Maskell, he was a part of this Christian sociology group, and so he always had this passion uh, for for, um, how Christians should live in society and how they should be salt and light in society and what that means in terms of politics and economics and education and, and broader Cultural questions and his first book on Christian anthropology. I think it's Man, His Origin and Destiny, but it focuses more on these sort of economic and political and sociological questions. Uh, but that's not really where he goes in in this in this chapter in terms of focus. W- what did you What did you make of his answer to this question of what What is the individual? What is the human person? And, and how does that answer relate to? Society, or
0: um, I thought it was very helpful. I mean, and like you say, he kind of draws on Maratón to a significant degree, doesn't he? Um, but that um, and and that concept of personhood, I think, is, is one that is so important that, especially in the age that we live in, and, and I think you know clearly he's writing this in 1958, right? This is this is before the 1960s, and uh, you know, leaving aside the sexual revolution. Express, the rise of expressive individualism, which, you know, is is possibly the defining feature of the 60s and, and to the to today, right, which everything in some ways else follows, um, that concept of personhood which he articulates um, I think is very helpful, actually, and one that maybe um, is, is very important for us to rediscover in some sense, um, that we are individuals, that we do find ourselves our sense of, a ground of being within ourselves but actually that as persons we are inherently relational that uh, we are created for community and actually that in, in being persons we reflect the fact that the God we worship is Trinity that the God we worship is three persons in perfect communion in perfect union um, and that that is also the ground of what human life is supposed to be like as well um, so yeah, I think it's very helpful
1: Yes, and and he wants to say that we are social animals and we are political animals and we are made to contribute to the common weal and the common good. But at the time that he's writing, he's also responding to the existence and and growth and spread of Marxist communism. And it's right after a a period of national socialism and fascism. And so he, he seems to want to guard against collectivism. So... He, he gives the um, Boethian definition of personhood, but he, he goes on to say that, that he finds Jacques Maritain's understanding of, of, of personhood even more, um, I, I don't know if he, he'd say, um, he, well, he, even more re- revealing in terms of its relationship to Scripture and, and a theological vision of what God has made us and calls us to be uh, he, he, he hones in on two particular aspects of, of, or characteristics of that. Can, mm-hmm. can you talk about that? Can you share that passage with us? Yes,
0: absolutely. Two of the noblest charis- characteristics that personality involves are the capacity to make free and responsible decisions and the capacity to give oneself in them. The rationality in which personality formally consists confers both the power and the duty to make decisions and to abide by their consequences. As God's vice-regent, bearing on himself the seal of God's image, man has been given a kind of finite and relative participation in the creative activity of God. And the sphere in which this freedom is supremely operative is that of his own inner life. It is because it holds this exalted conception of man, and not because it is callous to human suffering, that the great Christian tradition has maintained that the man combined himself by irrevocable vows in marriage or the religious life, and has dared to insist on the awful doctrine of hell.
1: So, what, what did you make of this argument? Because I, I think some people would find it shocking. He's, he's saying some of the highest aspects of what it means to be human have to do with freedom, and I think even a lot of Christians right now would say, well freedom and this emphasis on individual autonomy in the West and the Anglosphere is what's made for a very atomized and lonely and broken culture so if Christians think so highly of freedom doesn't that just make us part of the problem but what do you think is going on here I mean it's
0: interesting to your point I guess there is obviously the question of what is freedom um, and and I think this is one thing that is interesting, I guess he is generally using freedom in the sense of a negative sense of freedom, right? That you have a freedom of agent of agency, right? Of will. The freedom um, of choice. But as opposed to a freedom, which is, a, I guess in some sense, a truer freedom, which we find in Christ, right? Freedom from sin and death and hell and all of those things, which the, the bad choices we could make. Um, and yet, if we are... To be, being to actually say yes to God, in in which in, in some sense is um, in any way a will of our a decision which we accept, which we have any will in. Um, we have to have some ability to to respond to God of our own volition. In some ways, even mm-hmm. if we completely accept, as you know, of course, Mascorn uh, would say this this is entirely God's gift that we can respond to God that we can um take good responsibilities in life that we can make good choices it is because of god's grace um but yet it also requires in some sense our cooperation uh, oh. our ability to consent and to assent to it i mean it uh, it's it's necessary in some sense right and you know for for the doctrine of hell to make any sense um as Maskell says here and goes on to say in more detail um it does seem
1: necessary and he he makes the point that it's not simply an arbitrary freedom that that um, is so integral to personhood, but it's the freedom to give ourselves. Mm. And so he says we are made for communion, and God has given us the freedom to give ourselves irre- irrevocably in marriage or irrevocably uh, in monasticism or irrevocably into union with God or... Mm. or, or um, but the alternative to these things would be, what, what um, divorce, you know, breaking your religious vows, or, or um, choosing to be separate from God in, in hell. And, and so, he, he, you know, I, I guess this is why he describes it as an awful, um, in, in the awe-inducing and, and weighty sense of the term, uh, ability that God has given us, or, or aspect, characteristic that God has given us. Hmm, yeah.
0: I mean, and, and it's interesting, um, the principal of Wycliffe Hall of our theological college, um, who in many ways is quite influenced, I think, from some of Maskell's idea, and is going to be talking at the upcoming um, Maskell conference, um, makes the point. And I, I do wonder, I'm not sure he's. I've ever heard him directly attributed this to Maskell, but I, I, I suspect, having read this book, that maybe it, it, it may have at least some creative influence from this, that... Um, if I were to make a robot who yes. was going to be, um, I think he uses the slightly strange example of his wife. But and then you know I programmed this robot to love me, and it was you know it only loved me in any way because because it was programmed to do so. Would that be real love from the part of the robot, or would that just be really some form of blind command? And I I guess that is part of um, what Maskell is kind of saying, isn't it? And it is a slight critique on some of our brethren, um, brothers and sisters, who hold to maybe a slightly more, um, uh, how should we put it, Um, a slightly more definitive form of predestination and of kind of um, a lesser place of human volition and the human will um, in response to God and, and also in responsibility for actions. But I think it is one that makes sense of the scriptural witness and also which makes a lot more logical sense when you really drill down to, what does it mean um, to be in the image of God mm. and to be able to respond to God in in a way that seems meaningful and actually seems like it's truly relational and truly one of communion?
1: Right, he he does uh, seem to rule out of bounds uh, a, a doctrine of predestination that rejects the the, the um, freedom to give oneself. Um, it, in, in union with God by His grace. Um, and, and he also seems to reject uh, a, a universalism that would say, no matter what, given enough time, um, we, we are made for God, and so we will inevitably um, turn to Him and and enter into union with Him. And, and he seems to say that there is good, even if it's a awful and, and even um, perhaps scary good, to To the fact that we can make permanent vows to to a spouse, to a religious order, or or, or to God, and and um, I, I think it's a pr- profound point to meditate on, mm-hmm. and and it gives us bo- both both um, a different understanding of the love of God and also the, the fear of God. It makes our lives seem more weighty than they would if if we simply um, held to one of those other positions mm-hmm. that, that we were describing.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting as well, just um, on the, the case of making vows. Of course, um, something which we haven't spoken about um, is Maskell's own commitment. I believe he was a member of the Oratory of the Good Shepherd. I think yes, that's right, which he was is a, a, a well-known um, Anglican fraternity, which I believe involves celibacy. Yes, uh, he took correct? a
1: vow to celibacy that's yeah, right.
0: Yeah, um, which you know, and 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 that is something which I think in in the modern context, I mean, it really does seem. Almost absurd, right? At least to much of the worldly eyes, that you would, um, that you would reject sexual relationships just because it, in so many people's eyes, is the thing that makes you truly human to some extent, right? To to, um, live your sexuality out in the way that um, you feel you must, Um, but yet actually, I think it is within that, you know, clearly within the Catholic tradition, this um, this sense of. Vocations, either to marriage or to religious orders, in some sense, um, which maybe holds out um, some opportunity, some hope for um, what a Christian response can be in the in the current context which we find ourselves. Um,
1: yeah. Yes, and you can't hold to Christianity and, and um, believe what the culture tells us about um, the expression of sexual. Uh, orgasm and satisfaction is required to have a good life because, or required to be properly human because Jesus would not have been mm. a, a real human if that were the case or lived a good life mm. and if you start denying that Jesus in his celibacy was a, a real human and lived a good life then you've gone so far from the Christian faith that he is the way, the truth and the life mm. that that you're in a whole new religion, um, so I think it's an important point, and and I think it, it it contributes to 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 this idea that human relationships and communion are more than just the physical, although in many cases people are called to, to physical union in marriage. Um, he he ends by talking about what what um, we should be. Working and hoping and praying for in terms of our social relations. Can, can you share that mm. closing quote and then we'll call call, call it a day?
0: Mm. And I think this is helpful just to add on to that just before I read this because, right. um, you know, Maskell is positing in some mm-hmm. sense that sustenance that we need to live, not as you put, you know, on this kind of... Um, that it's sexuality that makes us human in some sense, but it's actually... Um, the presence of God, and especially someone who you know, is very committed to contemplative prayer and actually um, receiving energy and grace and the ability to live well um, through con- contemplation of the divine presence. Mm. Um, so let me read this last paragraph. It is the contemplation of God in prayer that must be both the source and the end of all human activity in society. The astounding energy which has marked the lives of many of the great contemplative saints, will no longer seem paradoxical or unexpected if we recall that in their prayer they are energised by the God who is pure and absolute energy and that in their activity is an overflow from their prayer that it proceeds ex super abundantia contemplationis and if contemplation is the source of all fruitful and rightly coordinated activity it is also the ultimate end to which that activity is directed for the end of which each man is made is the contemplation of God in heaven. This is a contemplation to be enjoyed by each man not as an isolated individual soul, but as a fully integrated human being and a member of the body of Christ. The Christian proclaims his belief in the communion of the saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
1: Well said. Well, thanks, Callum, for letting me... uh Cr- crash your work day in your uh, flat to talk about maskell and and I look forward to finishing up the book with you next week.
0: thanks so much for having me clinton it's um it's great that this has finally forced me to actually <laughs> get down and and really read some Maskell because it's been such a pleasure and um yeah very exciting um some a voice which I think really needs to be heard uh, in the church and also in the society um our society more widely. And certainly has excited me about the upcoming conference, um, which uh, is happening in a few weeks' time at Pusey right. House.
1: And, um, yeah, so very, very much this has energized my interest in this. So, November 8th and 9th, Master Conference at Pusey House. We hope you can all attend. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can follow us at HolyCofE1 on Twitter or email us at HolyCofE at gmail.com. Talk to you again shortly